You're listening to the Top Woman Business Unusual Podcast. Now, the Top Woman Business Unusual Podcast. Learn from the greatest minds in business today. Interviews hosted by Ralph Fletcher. Learn how to improve business, get tips from industry leaders, and be motivated by real-life experience. Top Woman. Business Unusual. Um, all right, so it's lovely to meet you. Um, please, can you start off by giving us some insights into your journey, where it Absolutely. began, and what led to where you are now? Great. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really excited. My name is Sonfa, and I mean, I'm 28, but I was blessed to be many things, be in many spaces. Um, my journey started at 16. Um, I, I come from a very conservative traditional family. And at 16 years old, um, I was sexually assaulted. And that's where it started the identity crisis, the crisis as a young woman, where I belong from. And I started joining a couple of uh, feminist organizations. Uh, as a matter of background, I'm Tunisian, uh, but I was born and raised in Italy. So the context is the European context. Um, I started joining a couple of uh, feminist organizations. And that's where my journey uh, on within the women's rights space started. Um, I have an educational background in international relations and then in law uh, within the international relations background. My first job was actually at Council of Europe um, and I was working at the youth department, um, mainstreaming gender within the youth cluster. And that's where I got passionate about this intergovernmental organization. But on the same, I was wondering to which extent is impactful? Where are the people? You know, it's this small group taking decision, influencing policies, but I was wondering, are we influencing based on what people really need or what we, what we think people need? And that's where I reshifted within the grassroots space and I started working with young people. Uh, as a young woman myself, challenging within the women's space because I was too young to be in that space and then in the youth space, I was a woman. So, you know, I started to really focus specifically on young women. Um, and I was moving between Africa and Europe. Uh, and then that's when I started to realize how important it was to inform young women on their rights. The mm -hmm. pandemic has hit. In the meantime, I worked for different organizations, including the African Union. Um, but when I was at home with the pandemic, I realized that access to justice was not considered as an essential service. And within the continent, we have seen a horrific rise of violence against women. And that's when I thought, okay, I want to put uh, a think tank together to really do women-led research, uh, which is simplified. I want to make sure that women can access this research without these long, tirelessly academic, you know, books, but instead having something summarized that speaks to women, that informs women about their rights. So this is really shortly my journey. <laughs> That's wonderful, Sodfa. And um, I've got a whole lot of questions, but just picking up on something you just said, you came 
I think you said from quite a conservative background. How has your family um, taken to your activism? Have they have they been on a learning journey with you and through you? Well, um, kind of. Um, I mean, I I don't have any relationship with my dad, but I have a strong relationship with my mom. But despite that, she's still very conservative. Um, despite the humble success that I'm making as a young woman, the priorities remain, when are you getting married? <laughs> so that's where the conversation ends. Uh, but my work is really influenced by my mom as well. Uh, when I talk about trying to you know, help women, uh, everything has started with my mom, uh, victim of domestic violence, abuse, um, she, has a, she hasn't ended her educational background and studies and journey. So when I think about informing women, I think of my mom, something simplified that uh, she can easily understand. But despite that, I think sometimes mindsets are just the way they are. It takes a long time to change mindsets. So I started to have this balanced and you know, positive relationship with, with my mom. Uh, trying to get into yeah simple conversations and then I do my life and she does her life. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, you must have been witness to so many stories of bravery and tenacity. Are you able to share one or two with us? Absolutely. I I think that's I'm blessed of the fact that I met thousands of brave women. And you meet them in, in the most unexpected circumstances. I would like to start with this lady. Um, maybe I will not mention the name, but um, she's originally from Iran. And I met her in Germany. At that time, I was invited to facilitate a session uh, with survivors of trafficking and domestic violence. And I remember we went out and she was so excited to sit outside and have a beer. So I asked her, what was your journey? Uh, at that time, she was 20. And um, she was into forced marriage and she was raped, beaten. And one day she was like, either I die or either I try to save myself. So she walked from Iran to Turkey by foot. Wow. That was, I was amazed. Um, she arrived to Turkey, she was detained, then an NGO managed to bring her to Greece. She was in this detention center in Greece, and finally she managed to get asylum in Germany. And now she has started her life. And this is the type of bravery that I like to talk about. Yes, because these are the stories we don't hear often. Yes. That's so important for you to tell them. I know, and that's, that's one of the stories that has inspired me the most, but also within the continent. Um, I can mention this name because she's quite famous, uh, Blessing. She's a survivor of human trafficking uh, from Nigeria to Italy. And um, after years of being trafficked and exploited, she got pregnant. And that's when she decided to save herself and the baby. So she denounced this big trafficking of ma mafia between Nigeria and Italy. Uh, it was incredible, her bravery, uh, knowing that her family got repercussions in Nigeria. She still went and she managed to save herself and many other women that mm. were blocked into that, yes, trafficking. 
it's something that we don't hear about. And, um, you know, it's just absolutely mind-boggling that it's not front of mind for all of us around the world. Mm. I know my daughter is in Seoul in South Korea, and she says one of her friends has actually stopped working formally and set up an NGO to assist trafficked women. So, you know, it's a global, it's a pandemic, you know, and it really does need exposure and discussion and being brought to light. So thank you very much for what you're doing. Um, congratulations mm -hmm. on being selected by Apolitical as one of the top 100 gender policy influencers. Thank you. <laughs> It must be really energizing to be part of a committed collective. Um, what does this accolade mean to you? Thank you. Oh, it was really exciting. Um, just fun fact, when I received the email, I didn't understand what was going on until it wasn't published <laughs> on the website. So, but, <laughs> and it was, it was really incredible. Um, I, I owe a lot for whoever has nominated me um, and for the selection committee uh, it's a great progress um, for my career but also for all the people I've worked with uh, within the youth space or women's space. Uh, I think to me uh, recognitions are important but what really matters is then what's next and, and that's what I'm trying now to focus on. Uh, I'm 28, how do we move forward? What are um, the achievements I would like to make by 30 in terms of impact for women? Yes, but it was absolutely exciting. I was very happy. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> okay, so, so I was just about to say, I found this quote. I'm not sure if it's from you particularly or whether you reposted it, mm -hmm. um, but I'd just like you to comment on it. Um, Feminism is key to achieving the intersectional mass mobilization required to deliver the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. Yes, uh, that's a quote of mine from an article that I wrote. Yeah. And I was indeed um, discussing the, um, how we should intersect feminism within the youth space, but in my opinion is in all spaces and all environments. Um, the Agenda 2030 or Agenda 2063 or uh, East African Community Vision 20, 2050, I mean, all these frameworks are very ambitious. Mm -hmm. And every time when I see it, I'm like, are we sure we're going to achieve the Agenda 2030? Like, mm -hmm. let's take a look. The world is collapsing around us. There is a humanitarian crisis in Yemen, in Syria and Libya. We are having environmental issues. We are having conflicts and violence against women is still persistent. Mm. Uh, but at least if we want to make an effort, uh, we need to be bold in that effort. And to me, feminism is beyond women's rights, is an understanding of structures of power. Yeah. And in my opinion, when we embrace feminism and we have that understanding of structures of power, we can then achieve all the goals of the Agenda 2030, prioritizing also things such as mental health. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been pushing so much into achieving these frameworks or battling for different causes in our daily life that we, 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 we are still struggling in prioritizing mental health. 
in mm. being honest and being like Fiona today I'm not feeling well mm. today I'm sad um yeah. so i think feminism gives that platform and that mindset to also open up to mental health mm-hmm. um so I, to me is the key it's something yeah. that i embrace and i'm trying to mainstream in everything i do yeah it's kind of for grounding because feminism isn't to do with gender necessarily it's to do with a world view So if you're able to be nurturing and caring and to be generous and inclusive for me that's a definition of feminism and anyone can anyone can participate in that and if we have that as the fundamental in our society then as you say the goals will be achieved mm, absolutely i think also something that i really like about feminism is the understanding of not speaking on behalf of people and i think references a bit when i was mentioning about how i i love uh, influencing policies but i'm always concerned am i maybe speaking on behalf of the women i'm working with um so that's that's i think something powerful that feminism gives you instead of speaking on behalf of is building platforms to empower people and let people be in the front line So that's what I really love and I think everyone should embrace without misconceptions because you know there are a lot of interpretation of feminism uh I I think once I was in a conference I was in Manila actually and I was speaking with someone I met close to the hotel and I remember I introduced myself saying I'm a feminist and this person say so you burn things and I was like no that's <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, so there are many misconceptions and yeah. I think podcasts like this or opportunities you provide with the conference are an opportunity also to explain the multiple faces of feminism. That's the Absolutely. beauty. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what I was describing earlier I suppose for me is my understanding of the feminine, you know, and so and that for me is something that um for me to strive towards is uh like a societal thing and a communal thing if we could get that right i think the world would be a better mm. place yeah absolutely and when you were speaking just now about not speaking on behalf of people i was reminded of that um parable which says um until the lion has its own historian the story of the hunt will always be told from the perspective of the hunter so yeah. i think that's a really important thing that you know in history often you get the one perspective and that's often the perspective of the victor but the people you know who've endured don't necessarily get the voice so as you say this these are important opportunities for us to speak um So now if we get on to my next set of questions was about technology. So digital divide is we we must have this conversation more than ever. With the pandemic we shifted online but who are these we? Mm. When we talk about um uh, children or young people in rural areas the impact on education um and then that's another conversation also on our quality of education <laughs> but still uh we have prevented many children to access education 
which is a safe space also when it comes to female genital mutilation, to child marriage, and broadly uh, the disconnection from the workspace and uh, the flow of information. Uh, the internet is a window to the world. It's a great opportunity for us to see from South Africa to Tanzania, to have meetings from South Africa to the US, to access in one second information. But also internet was the window, is the window to the world as happened in Tunisia. Uh, more than 10 years ago, uh, the famous Arab Spring was successful because bloggers were able to real time provide information on what was happening on the ground. So we recognize a lot the role of the internet, but still in our continent, we don't have yet these infrastructures. And that's a bold call to action that we should make. Mm -hmm. We need to make sure infrastructures are in place because access to the internet is a priority, especially to the younger generation. We cannot afford anymore to have uh, people being still disconnected. And majority of the continent is still disconnected, actually. Uh, yeah. It's then beyond the infrastructures, we are talking about access to the internet in terms of service providers. We talk about laptops, we talk about phones. And recently with COVID, I've seen many organizations uh, offering internet package for people to attend conferences. And many times I've been arguing with these organizations, but it's not just about internet package. It's about mm -hmm. electricity. It's about the yeah. laptop. It's about the phone. So uh, about 5G, definitely. Uh, the, we need, I mean, the current level of our internet speed is questionable. Um, and I can just imagine for people in innovation, uh, people in entrepreneurship. I mean, from my side, I do research. So what I need is Google and, you know, access to few um, uh, websites. But I can just imagine what does it mean for innovators. Um, but what I like about the conversation on digital divide and internet is also the fact that there is a rise on technology-facilitated violence, specifically technology-facilitated gender-based violence, which is something as think tank we are working on. So from the one side, we are looking at the progress in terms of accessing internet and digital divide, but we need to make sure that we take a look also on the speed of technology-facilitated gender-based based violence, specifically non-consensual dissemination of intimate images and videos, as well as how threatening is the digital space for women to express themselves. There is a threat on their digital identity. So mm -hmm. it's extremely important that as we carry on this conversation, we look at the benefits, but also the harm, and what are the frameworks in place. There are still challenges in internet regulation. So how then on the same as we put in place, you know, infrastructures, we also try to regulate the internet for the safety of everyone. Yeah, definitely. It's a very exciting journey and it's kind of, it's opened huge avenues and then, but it's also shown where all the structural faults are. So, yeah, hopefully when we chat next year, it'll have improved. <laughs> Why not? Hopefully. Maybe this is an opportunity to shake things. Exactly. <laughs> Okay, staying with technology, um, it has been a critical factor in ensuring that the liberation of women is seen from a global perspective. Would you agree? Sorry? Okay, so staying with the idea of technology, 
It has been a critical factor in ensuring that the liberation of women is seen from a global perspective. So not a narrow, but seen as a, a global movement. Would you agree that it's enabled us to do that? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we just ended the Generation Equality Forum. 25 years, actually, 26 years ago, great women were in Beijing giving us the declaration and platform for action. Mm-hmm. After 26 years, women from all over the world have watched in streaming head of states, corporates committing for another five years journey. And this gives us the opportunity not just to be part of the journey, but for accountability. I yeah. mean, 26 years ago, I was two years old. But even if I w- was alive, it would yeah. have been difficult being part of the conversation and then putting in place the accountability framework. Now, we don't have excuses. We know what Kenyatta has committed on. We know what South Africa has committed on. We know Rwanda. So we, we now just have to mobilize and put in place the accountability. But also it's important for this um, sharing of stories. The mm. internet is giving us the opportunity to get to know incredible women in different fields from all over the world. So that's, in my opinion, when you get to know and you appreciate that sense of solidarity is what makes, you know, the women movement. So definitely internet is our biggest ally. <laughs> And that's, I think, the uh, one of the major focuses of the um, conference where the uh, this interview will be played is telling, sto- you know, storytelling and brave stories. So getting them out there and inspiring uh, the world. So thank you for that. Um, I read the biography, A Man of Good Hope by Johnny Steinbeck. He's a uh, South African author who I think's in Oxford at the moment, about a ref... I don't know if you've heard of the book, A Man of Good Hope. Um, it's a story yeah. about a refugee's journey uh, from Somalia to Cape Town. And I was mm. struck by the vulnerability of people living outside societal structures. Um, do you work with women migrants and refugees both in Europe and in Africa? Yes. Um, I worked with the European Network of Migrant Women in Europe, so I got to know stories of migrants and refugees. In that case, we talk about the refugees in Greece. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think my most impactful interaction with refugees, I've been to Juba, South Sudan, and I've been to a refugee shelter in South Sudan. Oh, wow. Now, if anyone has ever been to South Sudan, South Sudan is literally under construction. That's the only description I can have. Is one of the youngest countries in the world and in the continent went out from a tremendous war, but the, the problem of refugees is still there. Um, and when I went to the refugee camp, I was, I, I was even unable to interact with refugees. Um, and the reason is, Okay, I come, I see, I hear your stories, but I can't change your life. What's the purpose? Uh, I don't want to be a messiah of hope when I know I can't do anything for you. So I was just quite there listening to their story, but foremost to their anger. Mm. They weren't happy that we were there, which brings to this point. uh, Mm. What's the purpose of people visiting when Mm. then change doesn't happen? Um, And I remember what really shocked me about that situation is that we spoke actually with a very young lawyer 
incredible young man who was telling us how many times he had challenges within the camp because the only thing he wanted was to make sure the children could access quality education. And he was asking for a room that could be an entertaining room for uh, children and young people to access the internet. After that visit, I received a call. That guy was detained. Ah. So that's the extent of which it's really entrenched the situation on refugee camps. And when we talk about refugee women, we talk about period, we talk about health, we talk about access to clean water, we talk about too many things that it's too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's an emergency. And that's a little bit my comment on, are we sure we can achieve the Agenda 2030 mm-hmm. when we still have all these people being refugees or displaced? And up to now, we are unable to provide them a life of quality and dignity. It's also about that. Uh, we think that we are saving people, but are they living a life of dignity? So, mm. yeah, that's, yeah. Okay, thank you for that. Um, how has COVID impacted on women's activism in your point of view? A lot. I think has provided challenges, but also opportunities. We have seen uh, platforms coming to life, uh, bringing together different uh, women's rights advocates, experts. Um, we have seen also uh, creative thinking, you know, shifting physical meetings to virtual and conferences. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the reason why it has impacted on women's rights work or advocates is because it became challenging uh, and on women's rights. We have seen a lot of backlash. So when you see a deterioration of the status of women's rights, it's even harder to work on that subject. And again, I'm mentioning access to justice. I'm mentioning economic opportunities. We, ha- we are seeing a lot of opportunities, free trade agreement. Mm. But still, up to now, women in the informal sector, um, cross-border um, market or, uh, you know, the vulnerability of women in the market. Uh, now in Tanzania, we are slowly... Uh, getting COVID measures, we are a little bit late, one year, but still, it's happening now. And and in my mind, I'm thinking, how can you do that? And when there are women working in the market, and they are maybe the main breadwinners. Mm. Um, so you see, it, in my opinion, COVID has just shown us how fragile our system is. Yeah, so, yeah, even when I hear let's rebuild. I don't want to rebuild. There's nothing to rebuild. Let's dismantle everything. And we need to put together and have alternative systems, resilient systems, economic, social uh, systems that are resilient for any future next shock that we could face at continental or global level. Definitely. Thank you for that. And just as a kind of a segue from that, what what do you feel the priorities are for women activists post-COVID? I think you kind of touched on that. Let's not rebuild. Let's like reimagine uh, mm. all together. Take opportunity. We don't want like all the the structural deficits of the past. We want to build something new and something that we can that gives us all hope. So I don't want to answer for you, but um, maybe you could continue with what you think the priorities are for women activists post-COVID. 
<laughs> Absolutely. I think that answer provides uh, what I wanted to say, but I think we, we have also an and now have an opportunity with post-generation equality forum. We have six action coalitions and we have the Women, Peace and Security Humanitarian Action Compact. I truly believe that should be the agenda of women's rights advocates. The six action coalition commitments are comprehensive. We talk about sexual reproductive health rights, we talk about economic justice, we talk about gender-based violence, digital justice. Um, and on the same, we talk about women, peace and security. So both women in front line as the peacemakers and peace builders, but also the impact of conflict on women. Another priority that we should add is education. It's time for gender sensitive education remains a priority. We have seen how COVID has hit hard our educational system. But the truth is with our educational system, and I will say around the world, is still not progressive. Mm. We don't give space for emotional intelligence. We don't give space mm -hmm. to uh, you know, unlock the creativity of children. We are fitting children in a box. And mm -hmm. then by the time they grow at 18, we ask them to choose for their future. And we, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's really difficult and challenging and we don't take in consideration the mental health of young people or children, but foremost, we don't have space for gender sensitivity to make sure that children truly embrace gender equality, understand um, intersectionality. And when we were discussing about feminist intersectionality, we have also people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. You know, out there, the narrative is so toxic. And we spoke a little during COVID about the impact of COVID on people with disabilities and elders. Because, mm -hmm. yes, we said COVID-19 impact, impacts elders in terms of death. But few has been said mm -hmm. in terms of their mental health, yeah. being alone. So I think the future of women's rights advocates, or I think of everyone, is to be intersectional to the point that Every conversation includes people with disabilities, includes elder people, mm -hmm. in a way that we can achieve an equal and fair world of dignity for everyone. And I think that that takes us back to what we were talking about earlier, about bringing the feminine into the discourse and into how we build things. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. Um, as the founder of the African Legal Think Tank launched last year, congratulations. What trends have you noticed regarding feminist jurisprudence on the continent? Thank you. Well, um, as a think tank, we want to respond to a major challenge. We want to uplift African academia, knowledge production from Africa. And this comes from the fact that uh, one of our areas of work is human trafficking. Major of the data comes from the US state. When I'm quite sure we have talented, brilliant people in the continent that can lead this research and what lacks are resources. But also a ground of corruption within some you know, uh, institutions. So we want to address this by actually providing a platform for young people in academia, for women in academia, to have African-led knowledge production. And that's our ambition, specifically when it comes to feminist jurisprudence. Again, intersecting feminism within the jurisprudence sector and try to see what will come out from it. And African feminist jurisprudence, we are in the process, so we shall see what will be the final <laughs> result. 
I look forward to that. The strengthening of the voice from the south. I think that's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you are also a hub coordinator for the Africa Youth Movement. How close, yes. <laughs> how close do you think we are to achieving equality, peace and social justice? Or is this an ongoing journey, not a destination? Okay, I co-chaired the Africa Youth Movement. I ended actually one year and a half ago, but I'm still in the advisory. Um, and, and indeed, in that space as well, I, I met a lot of young peacemakers and peace builders. Um, the journey is still long uh, in terms of uh, achieving peace, uh, especially within the continent. Every time we, we achieve something, there is another area, mentioned the Sahel, uh, mm -hmm. or Western Sahara, that there are still, you know, untouched in terms of uh, peace building effort and peacemaking. Um, and it's also, in my opinion, in the continent, one problem that we have is that we still need to unlock that Pan-Africanist spirit. Mm -hmm. You have fairly mentioned earlier in the private chat about the problem of refugee and migrants in Tunisia. I mean, Tunisia doesn't even, Tunisians don't even think we're Africans. We are an extension of Europe. So mm -hmm. you can understand then when we have detention camps in Libya or the, mm -hmm. the unfair treatment in Tunisia. Uh, that's, that's one, uh, you know, attitude that further fuels conflicts. Mm -hmm. When, you know, people, the freedom of mobility, we, we don't have mobility in the continent. I have dual citizenship. I access easily with my Italian passport everywhere in the continent. But my Tunisian passport is not taken even in neighboring Morocco. Wow. So, you know, these are few of the examples that, in my opinion, then uh, exacerbate conflicts and um, undermine the peace-building effort. Mm. So, in my opinion, by, um, you know, with, with actually and through Pan-Africanism uh, and, um, and solidarity, Ubuntu, that's mm -hmm. when we will be able to, to put an end to conflicts. Yeah. Well, I think it is, a, it is a long journey, and I just look forward to oh, reducing that horror. It's just been too, too soul-destroying for so many people for so long. Um, South Africa has one of the highest rates of GBVF in the world. One of the key focus areas here in the effort to combat the scourge is gender empowerment, which includes educating men. How critical do you think this is? Oh, well, uh, first of all, yes, South Africa was in our radar for some time, especially with COVID. That was a horrific rise of gender-based violence and cases that we can't even describe now. They were horrific. I, I heard of a couple. Um, well, to be honest, something that I tell to people is that it's not my, it's not my duty to educate men. Like if I have to put effort, I put effort in empowering women, but men are players, key players in achieving gender equality. Like no matter how, for how long you can empower uh, women, if men do not understand uh, patriarchal structures, if men do not uh, get, you know, they, they, they do not uh, get awareness on the impact of violence, then, you know, half of the society remains left behind and as a result, violation and violence yeah. 
continue to be perpetuated. So it's it's important, but I think what it's really important in my opinion is in women's rights issues, women should be in the front line and there should not be men speaking for women. And that's a trend that I've been seeing lately. Men discussing how painful periods are for women or men discussing how atrocious is gender-based violence on women. And I'm like, why? You know, we have incredible women with powerful voices that they can talk and speak and narrate um, the the overall, you know, challenges that women face in terms of economic opportunities, empowerment or political participation. But broadly, yes, I mean, men are, are our ally. They need to stand behind us and support us and educate other men. That, in my opinion, would be even the better flow, like yeah. women supporting women and men educating other men to make sure that long-term change happens. We have NGOs like that in South Africa where there are amazing men who are educating other men. And uh, I think thereby enabling them to celebrate uh, women empowerment without feeling disempowered. I think that's the important thing because... That then can fuel the gender-based violence if the men feel disempowered. So to bring them along on the journey and uh, for the, the really kind of empowered men to empower other men has been an important step for, for us. And we have some really great NGOs in the country doing that. Um, in November this year, you are summit director of uh, One Young African. Can you just tell us how people can participate in that and what you're hoping to achieve from the summit? Absolutely. Um, So the One Young Africa, You Lead Africa Summit is co-hosted by MS Training Center for Development Cooperation and the East African Community under the patronage of His Excellency Jakaya Mrisho Kikwete, former president of Tanzania. Um, It's a five-day summit with day one uh, discussing youth participation in politics, day two, youth participation in business, day three, youth participation in peace and security, and then we will be having gender equality forum. Day four is what we call post-summit agenda. So delegates will come together and put together, they come together and they will develop what will be the one-year work agenda and what should be achieved and then day five is the end of the summit. Uh, we will be open uh, registration soon so uh, whoever interested can go to uleadsummit.org, register it's a hybrid uh, both virtual and physical in Arusha if yeah. measures will get better yes and uh, I'll be very excited as summit director to interact and with whoever is interested to be part of the summit. All right, that's wonderful. Can you just uh, repeat the um, the web address that people or the, the way that people can contact you to attend? What is yes. that? Yes, uh, so uh, the website is uleadsummit.africa. Oh, you lead summit. okay. Yes. Summit, okay. Otherwise on Twitter is One Young Africa. Okay, all right, lovely. Okay, that's Thank fantastic. You. And as we were talking about the technology, you know, you'll, we'll get... There'll be people from around the world attending. So that's fantastic. (laughs) Yes, indeed. It's again about technology. It's enabling us to connect and be part of the conversation. So we hope that 
actually technology will not fail us here in Arusha, but <laughs> fingers crossed. <laughs> fingers crossed, yes. Yeah. Sadfa, it's been so lovely meeting you that my last question is a, just a kind of a, a fun one. Um, if you could choose five people, past or present, to invite to dinner, who would they be and what would you have for dessert? <laughs> okay. So for dessert, uh, let me start with the dessert. I love sweet things. <laughs> Uh, so it will be definitely, I'm in the mood of ice cream, maybe because it's cold here. Yes. And five people uh, will be uh, Eya Shebi, a former African Union youth envoy, honored she was my mentor. Uh, second will be my mom, as much as I can, I'll bring her with me. Uh, the third will be Ban Ki-moon. Uh, ah. I have incredible respect for Ban Ki-moon. Uh, yeah. The fourth will be Nelson Mandela. I mean, uh, definitely. And the fifth person, uh, I think I would say Anna Zobnina is another of my mentors from Russia. So uh -huh. that will be the, I think, fun table uh, yeah. and fruitful conversations. Yes. <laughs> I think that would be a lovely dinner. <laughs> well, it's been so lovely meeting you. And um, I'd like to email you personally. Uh, uh, in the future. So I think I'll get your email address from Claire and then I'll drop you a mail just um, so we can continue the conversation. Absolutely. Let's keep in touch and thank you so much for inviting me. It was lovely. I love this chat. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Sadfa. It's been so lovely meeting you and all the best. And uh, yeah, you're inspirational. So thank you for everything that you do. Thank you so much. Have a lovely day. Take care. Yes. Thank you and you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.